RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by Raycon. Go to buyraycon.com slash missionlog today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your Raycon order. But hurry, this offer is available for a limited time only. That's buyraycon.com slash missionlog to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. The first ships in the collection, including the Orville itself, are available now at herocollector.com forward slash Orville. Use Mission 10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase with free shipping. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 378, Ties of Blood and Water. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, our mission is to examine Star Trek, episode by episode, exploring the morals, meanings, messages, and the heart contained therein. This week, Ties of Blood and Water, the one in which Kira is visited by someone who is like a father to her, and also her father and some heavy emotions that come along with them both. We'll explore all of that in a moment, but before, I'd like to tell all of you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter, where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Hey, before we get to the trivia and the show, a quick word from one of our sponsors, Eagle Moss. Of course, it's the Orville. What? On a Star Trek show? Yes, the Orville collection from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. And and actually, Norman, I have the shuttle here on my desk. And I have to say, uh, as I mentioned last time, it is sculptural. It is elegant. There's a, a weight and a craft to it that I really appreciate. Um, it's exactly the kind of thing that just looks professional on your desk if you're a a sci-fi fan like us. Now, these ships were developed in partnership with and based on Seth MacFarlane's hit science fiction comedy drama, the ships of the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection from Eagle Moss Hero Collector. The first ships in the collection, the Planetary Union ship the USS Orville and its shuttle, are available right now directly from the Eagle Moss shop for only $29.95 each with free shipping. There's even an oversized XL edition of the Orville available for only $74.95. No matter what you order, use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. You know, John, with ads like these, I know that there may be some hesitation with fans because this is kind of like a sight unseen type of purchase. But if anyone knows Eagle Moss Hero Collector, Collector Ships, then you know that they are very high quality because they are based on very careful study of the models for use in the series, just like all of the other Eagle Moss ships that you may have collected. They're highly detailed, they're made out of the same die-cast metal, and high-quality ABS materials, and then hand-painted for stunning accuracy. And when I say stunning accuracy, I mean absolutely very meticulous accuracy. Each ship also comes with a display base, a collector's magazine filled with concept art and interviews and behind-the-scenes details of the Orville TV series, of which there aren't very many of out there in the (laughs) wild. So if you get these magazines, you'll get a lot of information. And additional ships are slated to join the collection soon, but these are the ones you can get while you can. So do it. For full details, including comprehensive views of each ship and ordering information, that can all be found at herocollector.com slash Orville. And don't forget, use the code MISSION10, that's M-I-S-S-I-O-N, and the number 10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire 
purchase. All right, let's get back to Star Trek, and let's get back to getting a little bit in touch with our emotions. And I'm so very emotional about hearing John's trivia for this week. (laughs) Try to hold it together for me. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Trivia for Ties of Blood and Water. We have a story by Edmund Newton and Robin L. Slocum, two names that are new to us here, and it's another one of those first-timer success stories. Robin wasn't totally new to Trek, though. She had been a production associate on DS9 since the beginning of season three and worked tightly with Ira, often as his assistant. Today's story was pitched by Robin and her husband, Edmund, to the production staff, and then the writers got to work. So the teleplay credit goes to Robert Hewitt Wolf. Always good to see Robert's name on a DS9 script, as he is a stalwart Trek contributor from way back on his first script sale to TNG, A Fistful of Datas. Many of his contributions to DS9 are partnered with Ira, like most recently when we discussed the two-parters In Purgatory Shadow and By Inferno's Light. This episode was directed by Avery Brooks. Hey, look at that. Captain Sisko back in the director's chair after we just saw him there toward the end of season four with Body Parts. Keeping pace, he'll be back to direct one more episode in each of the next two seasons. We have a new-slash-not-new ship here. It's time to get to know the Jem'Hadar battlecruiser a little bit. We did get a glimpse in the Purgatory-slash-Inferno two-parter, but here it gets a name and a little more prominent shot. John Eves designed it, and a four-foot studio model is constructed for the detail shots But this is one of the models where the production decided right away that they needed both a physical and CG model on hand. For any complex flying shots, they'll switch over to CG. As the series goes on for those detail shots, they typically use the physical model. And as for guest stars, well, plenty of returning faces. Uh, actually, all returning faces for this episode. Right off the top, you got Mark Alimo's Ducat, and we even get a visit from William Lucking as Furel in a flashback. You, you remember that he and Lupaza were killed in the episode The Darkness and the Light. So it's a pleasant surprise to time travel a little bit here and see him again. Then there's a very familiar face and maybe a bit unexpected Jeffrey Cones. Never heard of he's him. Back. <laughs> he's, I know. I know. Bear with me, though. Yeah. He's uh, he's back as Wayun, and, and no, he's not that Wayun that we saw get vaporized by a Jem'Hadar soldier into the death. This is another Wayun. We'll get into that a little bit later. But for now, it's great to see Jeffrey in the middle of what will be his long run of various characters, some recurring, some cleverly resurrected, like this one on <laughs> Star Trek. Major Kira's father is played by Thomas Kopachi, yet another oft-used Trek guest actor. In fact, he and Jeffrey are part of that elite group of five actors who have all played seven or more Star Trek characters on screen. We've seen Thomas on TNG as a Romulan and as a holodeck train engineer and in Starfleet garb as a human on the Enterprise B While this is his only DS9 appearance, he will turn up again on both Voyager and Enterprise. Finally, we welcome back Lawrence Pressman as Takeni Gamor, a character he first played in Season 4's Second Skin. Appropriate here, since this episode is kind of a sequel to that one, we did see Lawrence in DS9 without all that Cardassian makeup appliance on his face once. He was in the Season 3 finale, The Adversary, But there ends his run in the Trek franchise. Uh, Not to worry, though. Lawrence is one of those actors with a very long resume, and we touched a little on that before in other episodes of Mission Log. Go back and see him in the American Pie movies, or 9 to 5, or better yet, as Dr. Canfield on Doogie Howser, M.D. You have a choice. You can hear me talk about my father, a brave and handsome 286AT, or you can listen to John talk about Kira remembering her father. Prologue. It's an important day on DS9. Takeni Gamora is coming for a visit. If you don't remember him, he was the Cardassian who was part of an underground resistance to the Central Command. 
and was being manipulated by an unwitting and unwilling Major Kira, who was forced to pose as his actual daughter. Crazy stuff, right? But those two have a real bond now. And it just so happens that Gamora's knowledge can probably help crack the new alliance between Cardassia and the Dominion. He arrives, delighted to see Kira as she is to see him. He's tired, though. Off to his quarters. Kira shows him around. It's comfortable. She's pulled out all the stops. They catch up on a little business, though. Gamora's real daughter is still missing, presumably dead. Kira is the closest thing he has to a family right now. She's enthusiastic about his ability to help steer Cardassia in the right direction, and they'll have to get to work. Only Gamora has some news of his own. He's been diagnosed with Yarman-Fell syndrome, a fatal disease. Act 1. The prognosis isn't good for Gamora. Dr. Bashir says he'll do what he can, but that's not much. There's another complicating factor in that Gul Dukat has now contacted DS9, demanding that they turn over Gamora to them, which Sisko flatly denies. Gamora and Kira bond over the O'Brien's baby, closest thing she has to a child and the closest thing Gamora has to a grandchild. He's proud of her. He's been keeping up with her life as best he can. There is a section about her in the Cardassian Central Archives, after all. She tells him that Dukat wants him extradited, but he's a dying man. He wants to do one last good thing in his life, which is to share all his secrets with the closest family member, that would be Kira now, in order that it may be used against his enemies, that would be Dukat et al. It's what the Cardassians call Shrital, and that sounds awfully good to Captain Sisko when he hears about it from Kira. She's not so sure she's the right person. It's a lot of responsibility. She's not a good interviewer. She's taken back in her mind to her days in the resistance cell when a badly wounded man is brought in after a firefight with the Cardassians. It's her father, and he's dying. Snapping back, Kira tells Sisko she has no choice but to help the dying Gamora. Act 2. As Gamora's condition worsens, Kira tends to him, administering painkillers and getting to the work of interviewing him about his political secrets. As he talks, her mind races back to the scene in the cave where her wounded father was struggling for his own life. The resistance fighter Akira promises to make the Cardassians pay for what they did, hurting him, burning his garden. Then she's back, wrapping up her interview for the day with Gamor, tears in her eyes. Sisko is pleased with what Kira is gleaning from Gamor, but here we are some time later and his condition has worsened yet again. He's insistent that they carry on with the questions, even though they're both exhausted. Time is running out, and in more ways than one. A Jem'Hadar battlecruiser led by Gul Dukat has arrived at DS9, aiming to take Gamor by force, since the request for extradition has been ignored. Act 3. Dukat isn't alone. He's with a Vorta. Weyoun! This is Weyoun 5, not the Weyoun 4 Sisko saw killed. You know them, right? The Weyoun clones? They go way back. They're here to make Gamor an offer. Come back to Cardassia, and you won't be executed. Live out your final days at home. No, Gamor isn't having it. He knows they're trying to buy his silence. Now they bring out the big guns, with the promise that they found Gamora's deep undercover daughter, Ileana. As tempting as it is, he's not buying. They'll stick around, though, just in case. More Q&A and more burnout for Kira. She stops by Corks for a drink to take the edge off, then heads back to her quarters where she's visited by Gul Dukat. He has some very interesting information for her. Gamora's official record about the massacre of Kiesa Monastery. Act 4. It was a moment during the occupation. Cardassian raid on a monastery where resistance weapons were being hidden. Seventeen monks were killed, and Gamor was there. He says now it was wrong, that the Cardassians were wrong, and he regrets his involvement. But he can't change that. He hid it from Kira, knowing that she would hate him. In Quark's bar, Captain Sisko plays generous host to Dukat and Weyoun, by pouring a glass of canard. When Dukat refuses, Sisko knows why. It was a bottle full of poison delivered to Gamor. Dukat must be scared of something, but foiled again. Weyoun, thinking nothing of it, 
downs a glass since the Vorta are immune to most forms of poison. Kira is still wrestling with the new information about Gamora. When Odo confronts her about it, he says that Gamora was only 19 when the raid at Kiesa occurred. He was one of 400 soldiers, and who knows if he even fired a shot. Thinking what to do and what her obligation is, Kira's mind again races back to her father on Bejor, as he was in pain and dying. It was at that time that Pharrell told her they had found a Cardassian camp and were ready to attack. Leaving her father, she went with the others. In the present, Dr. Bashir finds Kira in her quarters to bring the bad news. Gamora is getting worse. He'll be dead within the hour. Act 5. Kira is cold with the news. She doesn't want to see Gamor, even to confront him. And Bashir says that she's making a mistake. That regardless what he did in the past, nobody deserves to die alone. As her mind wanders back to the past, Kira has come back from the attack. A successful one, which killed some Cardassians. She's too late, though, to say goodbye to her father. He died calling her name while she was gone, and all Kira can do is plan the next raid and dig her father's grave. The memory forces Kira to reconsider, and she goes to see Gamor. While he lays dying, she rests her head on his chest. Dr. Bashir reports the death, and Major Kira opens up to him about the end. Gamora has called out the names of family and hers. He kept breathing, kept fighting for life, until he couldn't anymore. All of this reminds the heartbroken Kira about her own father's death and how she wasn't there when she could have been. But this time, she was there for Gamor. With Legate Gamor gone, there's no reason for Dukat and Wayun to stay on DS9. Dukat tells Sisko that they will announce to Cardassia that Gamor had a change of heart at the last minute and embraced the Dominion government. The fact that it never happened is just a small problem that they'll have to overcome. When they request the body so that they may give him full state honors, Sisko says that's impossible, that arrangements have already been made. Cut to the surface of Bejor, under a large tree where Akira presses down the soil of the new grave she's dug for Gamor. The End you know, we're, we're kind of bound by the, uh, the the structure of TV, of course, in any script. And there's always a certain amount of exposition to get out. I actually love how they get the pertinent exposition out of the way in the teaser. And I, I'm not being sarcastic here. It, it was kind of perfect to work in Worf into that story. Explain to him what mm -hmm. happened. And it clues in the audience. <laughs> I mean, scenes like that are usually really clunky. But they did it well here. Yeah, I mean, it's better than the you know, last time on Deep Space yes. Nine and they shoot like all the way back to Second Skin and then kind of back to yes. now. It, it, those kind of things feel forced, but at least it's more like in the narrative of, oh, Worf, you don't know Kira the way you think you yeah. know her. Yeah, and, and just think about if yeah. it had been like, you know, three years since you've seen that episode, that, that's just kind of like, if you're new to it, that's all you need. If you're not new to it, right. it'll jog your memory. That's fine. There was a weird thing in that teaser, though. It, it looks like they forgot to make up Lawrence Pressman's hands when he comes through the airlock. So the, there's a, a two-shot where he's just standing there in mm -hmm. profile talking to Kira, and he's kind of got his, his arms up, like holding her shoulders or something. He just looks and is like, okay, there's human hands uh, with a very Cardassian face. Yeah, it's, yeah, and they were holding hands, They were, too. yes, yes. So it made right, it very so, apparent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've never really paid that much attention to, like, the Cardassian hand makeup, yeah. but one would think that it would be as pale gray as their rest of their yeah, skin. Yeah, you, you got to do something. And, it, you know, they, they make up uh, uh, Klingons, you know, to match the face tone. So you just see, you, you got to do it. They're Ferengi. You know, they're orange, yeah. and they, they, they got orange hands and blue nails. I mean, speaking of hands, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm glad that, that Worf actually extended a diplomatic hand to... Um, Gamora, so he, he wasn't so standoffish. Yeah. I mean, that is a huge character growth moment for Wolf. Yeah. yeah. You would, because he's obviously, with bits of dialogue, he's still very wary, rightfully so, about a Cardassian coming on the station, considering that the Klingons and the Cardassians have just recently ceased right. fire. So. Yeah. 
But, you know, did, did he not learn anything from his seven years with Captain Picard, which is, you know, you, you reach out to the enemy, you be the better person, you, you stand on principle. That, like, you know, all these things, it's like, yeah, they were enemies, but now, now they're not, or at least this one isn't. So now you go help. Now, you, you know, come on. It, it is a growth moment. He also had a lot of other opportunity for growth, I'm going to say. Yeah. True enough. True enough. Um, I also like the detail of the bracelet that they mentioned uh, in this in the scene where where Gamora says, oh, I'm glad you're wearing the bracelet that I gave you because Carol is about to return that in second skin. He's like, no, I want you to yeah, keep it. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. I yeah. thought that was nice. You didn't really have to have that much more exposition aside from that, knowing that there is like a very unique emotional bond that they have between the two of them. And jewelry usually is a, a good example of, of right. that. Right. You know, like a ring or a necklace, bracelet, things yeah. of that nature. Yeah. Oh, by the way, what is a 26-hour workday? Because <laughs> that seems a little short for me. <laughs> right. This is like, oh, come on, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's, uh, he's getting out easy on that. Uh, 26 hours a day? Is that a Cardassian? No, that, that, that's uh, Bajor. Uh, Bajoran days are 26 hours. But, oh, I'm going to get so many emails. <laughs> but it's an interesting question. Is like, well, will he be on a computer 26 hours a day? Because, again, that would be a very long work day for him. Maybe. Maybe not so much for you. Yeah. Uh, um, Got to say, uh, as I mentioned before, love Jeffrey Combs and anything. I love what we saw of Wayun. Um, so did Ira, which is why they contrived the whole clone thing for the Vorta. They just they, they love Jeffrey Combs and who doesn't? So they just thought like, oh, man, we killed him off. We need to have him back. So let's figure out a way to do it. Now, this is the only clone Vorta we've seen so far. We've only met other actors playing Vorta. And look, it is science fiction. So I do feel like in other hands, this could have felt really contrived. But I'll give them a pass here because it's Jeffrey Combs. Like, you could have pitched that to me before and just said, like, what if we make them clones? I'm like, come on. That's but it's Jeffrey Combs. Okay, (laughs) okay. So, John, are you trying to tell me and are you trying to convince the audience that Ira was the reanimator of Jeffrey Combs? Plus five for Norman. Well done. So meta. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Um, And, uh, oh, man, you know, I I love some good verbal sniping, and there is a good amount of it in this episode, Ducat and Cisco, Mm -hmm. with with, uh, 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 Ducat calling basically Cisco emissary, to which Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cisco says, how about puppet (laughs) to him? So good. So good. They're so very good together. Wonderful. Yeah. You know, they just really play off of each other's energy. And I mean, Dakot has tons of it because he's so smug, mm-hmm. so smug. Oh, yeah. He never doubts like what he's saying is like the greatest thing ever. Yeah. You know, the or the most righteous thing yeah. ever. Yeah. As we'll see later on when he decides to immortalize um, Legate Gamera's yeah. legacy. 100%. Um, I love... The, the way that they shot the scene with Gamora holding Karyoshi with Kira on the side. Mm. Because there is kind of like this, this play at what is family in this episode. And Gamora isn't really Kira's father, but they treat each other as father and daughter emotionally. Mm-hmm. And Karyoshi, even though Kira gave birth to him, isn't her son per se, but she has that maternal yeah. bond with him. And then all three of them together talking about you'd make a great mother, you'd make a great grandfather. Yeah. I just love how that scene was shot and framed. Wonderful scene. Wonderful scene. And I think, uh, I want to say it was Lawrence Pressman who said that that was his favorite scene in the episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's just really strong. Oh, (laughs) there is a great little moment. uh, Just again, playing to the strength of Jeffrey Combs. I'm sorry, I'll go back to this a million times only in this episode. But Cisco, when he learns of the Vorta being cloned, and he says, Mm -hmm. like, sort of questioning, like, immortality. Ed Weyoun says, of a sort, interested. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) so perfect he's just conniving his angle out of every scene that is an actor who is getting every moment squeezing every moment out of that script page so when i when he came in i was like oh hi Wayun. i mean the other Wayun. 
I mean, the new way in. Yep. Yeah, get used to that. Would I, would I be as? Would I be so bold, or am I going too far to say hello, Jeffrey clones? Oh, all right. We have to deduct a point there. But yeah, oh. yeah. Sorry, sorry. But darn it, darn it, darn it. Okay. Sorry, I had to fit the one. So you're not out of the game, though. Don't worry. Don't worry. Yeah. Okay. okay. I got plenty. I got. I got a lot okay. more to go. This is the 24th century, and we have a genetically modified uh, physician on the station, Dr. Mm-hmm. Bashir. It seems to me that Gamora's treatment and the way that it just is so cumbersome, push this button, rotate this thing, put this new vial right. in, isn't just that somewhat kind of antithetical to the technology of the time? Yeah, I, it, that, I thought the same thing. There, there's a lot of machinery, a lot of vials and cables and stuff. And, you know, even today in a modern hospital, like if somebody is on morphine, the patient usually has the button to control how much right. morphine they get. So depending, you know. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, yeah, that did seem a bit cumbersome. Like uh, there should be an app for that on a little... Oh, do you think it'd just be a little bit more automated yeah. or like voice controlled, like, mm-hmm. you know, button. Yeah, button. right. Instead of just having Kira, like, no, I'm talking to you, Kira. Right. No, I'm right. talking to the computer. Give me more medication. And, I mean, having have been under that type of uh, treatment, you can only push the button so many times during the course yes. of an hour. It's metered. Yeah. So you can't abuse your painkiller. Good plan. So Good plan. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to take us back to Wiyun for a minute. Uh, because which way you well uh, this way you not not the other way you not the one you were thinking about oh. um there's okay. there, there's the bit where cisco has just given uh ducat a dressing down and way says he doesn't like you very much we're gonna have to do something about your public image that's the wait that, that's uh, i love that like because it says everything about the cardassians and the vorta where it's not about what ducat did it's just about the public image of what he did. And again, I'm sorry, Jeffrey Combs is a national treasure, and I would watch him in anything. Done. I was laughing out loud because he almost kind of like just didn't care at all about any consequences to anything. The characterization is a little bit different with, uh, between Wayun 5 and Wayun 4. And I, it could be the script. It could be just like, okay, we're making a conscious choice because this is a clone and it's not the same guy, literally, but just, you know, genetically mm-hmm. the same. This one has a bit more, like, playful, uh, devious sense of humor than the other one did. The other one had it a bit. The other one was also a bit of a salesman. This one, there's just something even more that I really like. I mean, I'd like to get into it with you. I mean, I, I really don't want to throw this whole agree to disagree things. Mm-hmm. I don't want to throw this kind of like war between us because I don't want to start the Clone Wars. <laughs> okay. All right. You're back on the board. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Point back. Point back. Yes. You know, I did like the small scene that we got with Quark because it was the only scene that we got mm-hmm. with Quark. But this plays into something that we talked about in business as usual in our previous episode where we thought that Kira would have worked better with Quark when it came to being disappointed with his decision Yeah, as a gun runner. And it seems like this is kind of like the, would have been the logical follow-up to that emotional scene where now Quark is trying to console Kira in his own way by offering her something to drink to calm her nerves, offering her a black hole Mm -hmm. or, you know, this, this milk that would soothe her, soothe her tension it it just seems that with this scene i think that we were in some way in our own opinions we were kind of vindicated for that choice Mm -hmm. of having kira and quark instead of kira and um, instead of quark and dax in that situation absolutely yeah Yeah. um oh uh, another bit of uh crackling good dialogue uh not sure if it was specifically robert kind of sounds like an ira thing Ducat goes into Kira's quarters. I'm sorry to bother you. And she says, sorry enough to leave. <laughs> that might just be <laughs> one of my favorite comebacks of all time. And I hope I have the opportunity to use it someday. There is such tension between those two. Yeah. You know, we, at one point in time, we did call them kind of like the, uh, the angry divorcing parents yeah. Yeah. because they just, they just snipe at each other. And the one that we loved prior to this was when, Kira said, yeah, a Cardassian. You know, when he says, you, you know, you, you called him an emotion, uh, like a, a manipulative something, something, mm-hmm. something. Like really just, you know, very 
very yeah. scathing. And she's like, yeah, right. That's Kardashian. what they are. Yeah. We, were, we were both like, oh, yeah. what? <laughs> right. You know, and like you had that entire, you know, uh, that entire gif of Savage going yeah. off, you know, when that yep. happens. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one, though. She and she and no love no, was there for sure. Wonderful. Okay, so I'm going to Wayun now. Yeah, okay. Because I love me some new Wayun, right? And him screaming Dabo, <laughs> and then him sitting there just kind of like with that, you know, that Willy Wonka meme look mm-hmm. like, you know, his almost like his palm, like his chin's resting on his palm is just watching Cisco and Dakot go yes. at it. Oh, the intrigue and the thun. Just, he sucks down that yes. poison. Yeah. Uh. He's like a child wandering right, through all this. Right, right. It was good. There was something so genuine about his excitement at Dabo that, that it's complete mm-hmm. earnest sincerity in his fun. Mm-hmm. I, I loved it. Yeah. It's like, it's like those, um, those science fiction tropes of tasting something for the first time or seeing something for the first time. There's just like childlike innocence. Like, what? I win? Look at all this. Mm-hmm. Beautiful girl, money. And then um, Ducat with his final scene with Cisco. Oh. Talk about the master of revisionist history, past and present. Somebody call sick bay, because this episode reopens all the old wounds at once. I've heard there are physicians who appreciate the dangers of doing that. We'll discuss ties of blood and water in a moment, but first, a word from Raycon. So we're coming up on that time of year again when people start looking at lists, checking them once, or checking them twice, trying to find out who is naughty and who is not so naughty. <laughs> and it's never, <laughs> it's never too early to start gift shopping for the holidays because they're quickly coming upon us, as they always do, especially because today you can save big on a gift they'll use Every day, Raycon wireless earbuds. Yes, and we, we have talked about Raycon wireless for a while and uh, how good and how, how much enjoyment we've gotten out of them. I have to say that before we were recording today, um, I, was, uh, I was cooking dinner, and then after that, I was doing dishes. And the whole time, I had in my Raycon uh, E25 every day because they are every day and they are an everyday thing for me because they're so light. They fit perfectly and the sound quality is great. I just, I I forget that I have them in. Yeah. What I love about them is that they are so low profile Mm, mm -hmm. and they fit so perfectly. I actually, I'm, I'm one of those, um, I guess, very fortunate, uh, users that has the right ear canal size for the standard the standard uh, silicone pad oh yeah insert yeah so i never really have to fiddle around with that Mm -hmm. and as soon as i pop them in you really have to kind of remember to take them out (laughs) right (laughs) because they are that comfortable really yeah yeah yeah. so they're great and uh, so many good features about these uh earbuds and all of their audio products seamless bluetooth pairing uh, comfortable, yes. as you're mentioning, and noise isolating. Once you use that silicone ear tip, it really filters out a lot of that external noise. And you just start listening right away and keep listening for hours, which is what I did. Um, I keep my earbuds in the little uh, charging case, and mm-hmm. I, I just I charge it so rarely because they're constantly getting a charge in the case. Just keep listening and listening. Audio quality is great. And the thing that's even better is that not only is the audio quality so good, but you compare these to very high-end, very expensive earbuds. These are around half the price. So like you mentioned, uh, with the holidays coming up and you're looking for gifts for people, these couldn't be more perfect. Uh, It's something that everybody can use for calls, for music, for work, for play. Use them at home. Use them when you're out. Or look. Pick up a pair for yourself uh, because you, like me, will probably use them every day. And they are perfect for listening to holiday music. In. Yes. So go to buyraycon.com slash mission log today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your Raycon order. But hurry, this offer is available for a limited time only, and you don't want to miss it. That's buyraycon.com slash mission log to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons, 
buyraycon.com slash mission log. So what do you think about this tradition, Norman, uh, that, that I think could not possibly be more Cardassian <laughs> than right? sharing your secrets with a confidant so they can defeat your enemies after you're dead? Mm-hmm. I love this idea. I'm not saying I want to do that, okay? I, I just, I love it because of how perfectly it fits into the universe of these uh, characters that we've gotten to know. Uh, there is uh, there is a part of me that respects uh, that, even though the Cardassians keep secrets about everything all the time, they actually do take the time to spill their guts once in a while. So so that I think that's a good thing. This is why, to me, the Cardassians are just so well fleshed out. Because you can take a general idea. You can say, okay, we're going to take this word honor and we're just going to throw it at the Klingons. Or we're going to take greed and throw that at the Ferengi. Uh, logic, we'll throw that at the Vulcans. You know, But for all these attributes, they actually need to have consequence. They need to have some payoff other than just what's happening kind of for the convenience of the story at the time. So what I love is, okay, they needed to have a reason to get Kara and Gamora to talk. They needed a reason for this to be uh, important to Dukat and important to the overall political situation. And they just, it seems to me they just found the exact perfect thing to typify Cardassians. I love it. When Worf said at the very beginning of the episode, you know, Cardassian politics are very complex, mm-hmm. not nearly as complex as Cardassian parenting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's because a this good just point. adds like yeah. an, a complete other layer to how Cardassians treat their children. Because in this case, Gamora, even though that Kara is not his biological daughter, he treats her and, and regales her as is if they were on their own flesh and blood. Yeah. That's just this parent, though, because in the grand scheme of things, in the win-loss column, Ducat and Tane did not, or do not. Mm -hmm. Because, oh, except for Ducat's son, of which he only talks about, and he's completely disavowed uh, Torah Zial, and then Anabra and Tane, you would think, after hearing about this, about how Gamora said... I'm going to I'm going to basically give you everything that I know so that you can either use it for your whatever purpose or, you know, uh, avenge me upon my enemies. Yeah. Tane didn't do any of that. Well, to Garrett. But but do you think it, Tane was he was sort of giving that tiny percent of that that he could, which was basically saying get out of here, you know, like complete this task. But at the same time, like denying anything else, denying everything else, even though he thought that the room was empty. That That is still such a great scene of that episode. Uh, we're talking about uh, In Purgatory's Shadow um, mm-hmm. for anybody who wants to go back and, and listen to that. I, I kind of wondered, like, because the Cardassians are so secretive anyway... And they have this very complex social structure and family structure built around these sort of lies and underhanded deeds. How would others even know about this? Like, is this something that Cardassian parents talk about when they get together? They're, they're like, you know, you're you're getting older. Are you going to do that thing where you uh, spill all your secrets? Wait, what? That that's a thing. I didn't know. I didn't know that was a thing that we did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're supposed to spill all of your secrets to your offspring or closest family member. Well, what, what if I don't trust them? Well, no, you got to pick somebody and you got to mm-hmm. spill all your secrets. That's just, that's just the way it goes. That's how Cardassians work. I'm sorry. But think about that. It perpetuates sometimes. I mean, think about it. it. It perpetuates the, the lies, the fear, the, the paranoia. And maybe it kind of the person that is receiving all this information didn't want it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I don't want to know what's the skeletons in your closet. I don't want to know how many people you killed or blackmailed or had assassinated. Right. I don't want to know any of that. I just want to, I want to go off and, you know, and alter clothing or, yeah. you know, be a cook. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want that, right? <laughs> Anything but this. <laughs> Please. Right. Yeah. Well, like, I, I don't want to get too, too hung up on uh, Takeni Gamor. Uh, I mean, he, he's a wonderful, fascinating character and, and fascinating how he is 
cut from Cardassian cloth, but not like all Cardassians, for sure, because he has this independent streak in what he does. Uh, but this is really a story about Kira, and it's really about her relationship to him and the, the journey that she's going through herself. You know, I, I think one of the prominent themes here clearly is about forgiveness. And Gamora has this line to her after she discovers the secret of uh, uh, the Kiesa Monastery, where he says it was war. It was easy to despise you, but you weren't the monsters we were. Mm -hmm. And uh, I love that line. And I feel like we've come across this idea in Star Trek a few times, more than a few times. And we've discussed it relatively recently, which is when is the right time and under what circumstance do we forgive people for even the worst of offenses? And I really like here that this has been a long thread for Kira about having to work with and having to get to know many different Cardassians over time. I, you mentioned it before, the relationship with Dukat, so complex and so full of mm -hmm. landmines. You know, now we're back to him being a bit more of that, you know, uh, very obvious villain that he is. The experience that she had with Maratza in duet was eye-opening for her. Tragic when she saw him die on the promenade. Her sympathies deepened again when she met Gamor. And I like seeing that play out here because she has so much pain that she's just got to walk around with, um, which we see in a very profound way here. So the, these questions sort of popped into my head about her journey and the, the points that this episode is trying to make, I think. You know, does she owe it to herself to forgive these people around her? Because there are many. She has looked at various times at all Cardassians as the enemy. Then she's been able to kind of individualize a little bit and, and realize that there are good people there, that they aren't all just responsible for the experience that she went through. Does she owe her forgiveness to others? You know, how necessary is this that she forgive Gamor or forgive... Well, it's more pity for Maratza, you know, the, these people that she's encountered. You know, th there's also a complicating factor here, which is that Kira isn't totally innocent. For all her indignation about Gamor, she knows she did things that she is not proud of. And I'm glad we had that concurrent flashback story with this to show her insistence on going after these Cardassians and and really um, sort of without any care to who necessarily they were, just they're, they're Cardassian, therefore they are the enemy, therefore they're the ones who killed my father. It doesn't matter if they actually did, literally did. I'm going to take out my vengeance on all of them. Right. These are so incredibly complex questions, and mm -hmm. obviously they are... We we can't, you know, explore them with the kind of justice and reverence that, you know, that they need in, in one episode of, of Mission Log. Sure. However, you know, it's 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 rare to see uh, a character that, and especially with Kira, that is trying to work through the sins of her past by trying to atone for the, atone to those in the present, mm. whether it is Maritza and finding out that there were two sides to this equation, whether it is Gamora now um, who admits to her and confesses to her that we were the monsters. But at the same time, though, when it comes to the Kiesa monastery, he was just following orders. But where have we heard that before? Yeah. Well, right? exactly. Uh, and how many more orders did he follow, though, as he got older, as the occupation carried on, as he rose in rank? I mean, remember, he was a legate. Mm -hmm. So he rose to a pretty prominent position. And you don't get to be that as a Cardassian unless you are, uh, unless you have some military expertise, you know? Or unless you're well insulated with lies and secrets sure. and, and uh, blackmail. Sure. 
that get you that position, things of which the Cardassians excel at. Yeah. Um, but the thing with Kira is that I think in some ways um, it harkens back to what Dax said at the very beginning of the episode where she said to Worf, you didn't know Kira five years ago. Mm-hmm. The five, you know, the uh, the Kira of five years ago maybe would have taken a shot at uh, Gamera on sight because of who she was. Mm-hmm. But as she has learned forgiveness and as she has learned to forgive herself, she's realizing that it wasn't all cut and dry. It wasn't all black and white. War was ugly and war came upon the Bajorans. But every single time that she thinks about what the resistance cell did in defense of Bajor, they did some pretty horrible things and exacted some pretty serious atrocities on innocent Cardassians themselves. Yeah. Because not every person that's involved in a war is a soldier, right? You know, they're there under orders or they're, they're, they're the, uh, the retinue of the entourage or just staff like they were in this one, I guess, um, I can't remember it. It was, uh, they were talking about the Shakar resistance cell and how Kira, oh, it was, um, it was when, um, they killed all of Kira's friends Mm. that were in the Mm -hmm. cell because they bombed an innocent office building or a hotel or something like that. They killed, yeah, the, the generals, you know, uh, part of his family and the office workers who were there and yeah. Right. Yeah. And they were. I mean, they were Cardassians, but they weren't part of the war machine. Right. So they were innocents. Right. So she has to come to terms with that. And she has to come to terms with, okay, here's a chance that I can make good on two counts. One, I can try and work with, with Gamera and see if I can be his live-in help or taking care of him as a terminally ill father figure. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, though, she's working through something else, which is far more complex. Well, and that's what I like here is that Gamora serves this emotional purpose for Kira, and and that doesn't take away from the the emotional reality of the situation for both of them. He doesn't know it, but his presence there essentially purges Kira's demons around her father's death. This might be a stretch, but the thing that popped into my head was a, a close parallel to Kirk saying, "I haven't faced death; I've cheated death." I've tricked my way out of death and patted myself on the back for my ingenuity. Mm. Kira isn't quite that, but she is somebody who has pushed death or the the uh, the reality of death aside a bit and just focused that rage, focused that emotion, focused that anger on the next thing. You know, go kill the bad guy. Go Go take on this task and be tough about it so I don't really have to absorb... Uh, you, you know, the, the, the reality of my emotions here. And I, I had that in mind during uh, one of my rewatches, which was that scene toward the end of Act One, where Kira is talking to Cisco. She's trying to talk herself out of the Shri Tal. And that just mm-hmm. became even more telling because it, it was her realizing, okay, here's somebody that I feel close to. Here's somebody who's going to die. I can't put myself through that because I've never put myself through that. I wasn't there to take care of my father. Rather than doing that, I ran off to do the thing that was quote unquote easier, which is throw enough bullets at the bad guy to think that'll take my pain away. I understand where you're coming uh, from that point and this is obviously something that was very wearing on Kirk. I mean, it, it, it grinded him down to the point when, when he was in the, in, in the minds of, of Regula. Mm-hmm. He could not help but, but acknowledge that he hasn't really confronted the one thing that has taken so much from him. Because in a way, he was able to be clever about it. He thinks he was clever about it. I don't think Kira was being really clever about it. It's just that the circumstances as they were, they never really forced her to confront it because there was always something else emotionally for her to redirect, you know, her focus to whether it is rage against the Cardassians or maybe she even at one point in time really reveled in how good she was at her job. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, she, when she throws herself into something, she goes in feet first and all the way down to the bottom. That's who she is. Right. Right. 
But now the temperament of, you know, seeing the Cardassians in a different light, separated from the occupation, becoming a mother, becoming... And this is an important point that, that Gamera was saying about her. She has risen to such a level of prominence and authority and, and influence in the station that she's no longer just the let's go kill some Cardassian bad guys, Kira, anymore. She is someone who influences the future. And that's something for her I think was hard to take because she's not used to this kind of compliment. You know, she's not used to that kind of responsibility when it's really brought to her from somebody who she considers a father figure. Mm -hmm. When a father figure kind of like um, bestows upon you the accolades of their, you know, of their pride, you know, and of, of their deep, care and concern for your career and well-being, especially when it comes to boyfriends, like he was digging in Shikara. Yeah. I thought that was funny. <laughs> right, that was a good moment. Kira yeah. said that here's somebody who actually sees me for who I am now as opposed to who I was. Yeah. You know, and this is the person that I can trust, but Kira's not used to that either because she never had her father go through those, you know, evolutionary milestones with her to get her to this point. Sure. So one of the things that I also landed on here, John, is... What is family? Is it what you are born into or is it those who you love, who love you unconditionally and in turn those who you can count on implicitly? We've all heard those same types of uh, those tropes of, you know, I have friends who I'm closer with than the people that gave birth to me or I would take a bullet for any member of my family because that's the way that I was raised into this family. So. I'd like to go back to what I said before, that scene where Kira, Gamera, and Karyoshi were all together. None of them are the same species. None of them are related. Yet that's the closest thing at least two out of three of them will ever know to a real family unit. A father, a daughter, and a grandfather, and a grandson. Yeah. That, to me, spoke volumes of, look at the growth. Look at the just the inclusion of what they're trying to say in this scene, how it doesn't matter who you are, who gave birth to you, where you came from, what culture you're from. If you love each other unconditionally, that becomes a family. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, that, that shows up in Star Trek quite a bit, even if it's just sort of an implicit message, but you know, that old saying that, uh, you know, friends are the family you choose. Um, and that that's very clear here that it, with all the orphans that occupy <laughs> Star Trek's universe, there are many. Here's one who in five years time, uh, meaning Kira, has found a sense of purpose and friendship and family in very unlikely places that are very different from the life that she had and probably imagined for herself during the occupation. It's really, I, I, yeah, I mean, just to reiterate and, and piggyback on what you're saying, that, that scene with the three generations there, that they are, as you pointed out, different species uh, even, but finding love, finding a bond, finding a sense of um, compassion for each other is, I think, not only critical to this episode, but, uh, but kind of to the whole statement piece that starts. For all of your heartwarming family reunion event planning needs, you should probably book someplace a little safer than Deep Space Nine. Well, John, we've come to the end of an incredibly emotional journey throughout this episode. There have been high points, there have been low points, there have been points of reflection, and there have been points that have given us a great deal of pause to think about. And it's only going to get better from here. So when it comes to looking at the morals, meanings, and messages of this episode, what spoke to you and how did you feel about this episode? So I, I have to say that I I was a little torn about this one. Maybe I am still a little bit torn about this one. I I think it is an incredibly well-acted, well-performed, heart-wrenching 
episode. And and I want to love it on the strength of the acting alone. I, I also like how they gave continuity and more payoff to what was already a very strong episode, Second Skin, when, when we first met uh, Takeni Gamora, uh, when he first met Kira. It's very touching and very real to see a child care for a dying parent and the frustrations that come along with it. I think some of those scenes are among the best in this episode. I guess if there's any reason that I am less excited or invested in this one than I feel like I should be is that I, in a way, I'm taken back to uh, Odo's story in Things Past. And you'll recall that, you know, there's another episode that dug very deeply into something out of Odo's past and showed, you know, a, a bad position that he was in, bad decision that he was making. We tried to sort of atone for who he was then versus who he is now. So I appreciate fleshing out a character's background, but this episode sort of feels like a lot to do that, and I'm not sure if it feels well-placed for me. Like in, in the season where we're getting it now, taking this sort of deep diversionary dive into that particular story. And I hate to nitpick here, you know, is it something that should have maybe occurred a little bit earlier? Are these details that we should have learned about Kira earlier? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I feel like we're introducing a lot of new things in season five. We're really trying to get on track with the Dominion story, what's happening with the Cardassians, and we ended the Klingon thing. And then we throw in a story like this that is this deep emotional take on this one aspect of this one character. And I don't want to take that away. I, I don't, I seriously do not want to take away that level of depth because we get so much more depth on DS9 out of these characters than we get in most all the Star Trek. But there was something maybe out the placement here that didn't totally sit well for me. Now that, all that mm. said, all that said, this ending is great. Nana completely brings her A-game there are powerful emotional moments this is a this is a difficult episode to not appreciate and i deeply appreciate it i don't know if it is necessarily uh the best of ds9 or the best of what my expectations are out of ds9 maybe what i'll do at some point is go back and rewatch second skin and then watch this one a little closer to that rewatch of Second Skin. And then maybe ah, I'll feel like they yes. belong a little better together. So right. that, that's sort of the right. only drawback that I, that I would uh, come to with this. Uh, because again, I, I don't want to take away from the very powerful things that they're doing here. But just where it fits in the story, again, not totally sure that it sits with me. But that's, that, that's only the minor thing on my end. What about you? So... If I understand you correctly, you like the episode, you just don't like where it's placed. I think that's a big part of it. I Yeah, yeah. But because I, I feel like tonally, DS9 doesn't always know, and, and that's not to say that there is a lack of uh, foresight or talent on anybody's part, because, look, it's the reality of making TV. You got 26 episodes to fill in the year. You're, you're running like crazy to do that. You're burning out. You're, you're cranking out scripts. You're trying to revive maybe a great idea that was dropped. And then somebody remembers like, oh, hey, we should do this. You know, so there, there's a lot that goes into the decision making of how and when a story gets explored. I have this feeling as we're getting more toward the wrap up of DS9, we're, we're more than the halfway point to season five. So we got two full seasons left. That's mm -hmm. it, out of seven, right? And there has been such an emphasis right now on fleshing out the political reality of this world that they're in and, you know, forming these different alliances and what the threats are, that I'm glad to get more information about a character, but it also feels like, okay, wait, why? We just did the Odo thing not that long ago and just spent and an the Bashir thing not that and long ago. And we just did the, the Bashir thing, thing not that long yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, hindsight being 2020, are these elements that in a parallel universe you could pick apart, stretch out, and squeeze into those earlier episodes, those earlier seasons? So it feels a little more like, you know, 
knitting from the same pattern, not mm-hmm. just like, oh, hey, we came up with a good idea over here, so now we're going to squeeze that in as quickly as we can. Right, right. That's the only bit okay. of incongruity there. But that. again, we're, we're talking about powerful moments, powerful story, great actors all around. Um, so I think just as an episode, as a standalone story, it does quite well. And to me, probably would do even better if I had watched Second Skin and then, you know, a week later, two weeks later, watched this. I might actually do that just to see if it gives me better context sure. emotionally between the two characters, especially with, with um, Gamer. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I mean, I enjoyed this episode a bit. And, but the thing is, is that I have to kind of, uh, I have to check myself on this episode emotionally because like the visitor, do I enjoy it for the episode itself or because I'm so emotionally connected to the story? Mm-hmm. Um, and which I will uh, explain about a little bit um, in, a, in a little bit right mm-hmm. after this. I actually, my only real critique is that I don't think it pushed her emotional response far enough. Mm. Um, I, I think that sometimes when you spend too much time trying to massage the the B plot in here, in there, and in this case, it would be Dakot and his byplay with Cisco and Kira and introducing Wayun Five. That's all well and good, but it just feels like if you take that time and co-opt it for more of Kira's story and the exposition and pushing her emotional journey a little bit further. I thought that it's that I think that that's where the time should have been placed. Mm-hmm. That's just me. That's my opinion on that because Nana was so good at just going so incredibly deep into the gravitas and the desperation of Kira. And what does she do? How does she, how does she, um, what's the right word? How does she access the emotions that she has buried for so long yeah. with her father? And now, how can she reconcile them with a man who she has just come to terms with of being her enemy, not being her enemy, and now being the man who has basically given her the inheritance of his legacy to her? Right. How does she, how do you come to terms with that? But she does so, Nana does so in a way that is believable, that's very powerful, and you just can't help but connect uh, with her story especially uh, where I'm concerned because it's something that is very, very, very close to my own experience. Yeah. Um, You know, I think in the last segment and I think coming into this segment, we we sort of narrowed down the themes. It's hard to say that there is a particular message like you should do this, you should not do this. We're, We're really here for that emotional journey for Kira and thematically what that brings up. I, I really love that you brought up this theme of family, who family is, how you define family, because it is so much more important than just, uh, you know, the the genetics that were handed to you. It's really about the bonds that you make, uh, the emotional ties that you have. And uh, Kira has a lot of them. And it's great to see a character that loves as much as she does, has as much passion as she does. I love the scenes that we got before between her and Shakar, her and uh, Pharrell and Lupaza, um, because they always feel like they have meaning. They always feel like they have depth. Um, and in this same thing, we really feel that we get that depth uh, from her relationship with uh, Gamora. Um, and then the flip side of that is the the hurt brought out by Dukat. Gotta love that scene of her breaking the teacup across his chest. That was awesome. Good dodge by him, too. Yeah. Oh, that was good. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. So family is critical to uh, to understanding this one. And then, you know, I touched on it in the last segment as well, which is this thread of forgiveness. And there's also redemption through that forgiveness for Kira. She's been through a lot. And we watch her and we want her to grieve and to reflect and to not beat herself up about the choices that she's made. I think that's good advice for anybody. She needed a good cry. Sometimes we all do, you know. So um, it, it's cathartic to see her go through that and really understand the why uh, behind it. And that's an important thing that you brought up, John. Um, there is a process to this. You know, there's something that everyone at one point in time is either going to experience or have experienced. And how do you work through the process 
of such emotional trauma. And if you, if you would like to indulge me, if the audience would like to indulge me, this is, a, this is an exercise in how to do that. And it's something that I found very helpful in coping with something that happened to me. And if you allow me to put this into context of Kira's confession at the end of this episode, mm -hmm. I missed my father's death by less than an hour. Did you know that? Less than an hour. I always told myself it was bad luck, bad timing, the will of the prophets. But the truth is, I didn't have to go when I did. I could have stayed a while longer. Regret. It is the most terrible burden you can ever hold within yourself. When my father was in hospice, we had a long talk, as most fathers and sons do, when that inevitable time draws near. He was so proud of me, what I had accomplished in my career, how I turned my life around because I embraced all of the lessons he taught me ever since I was a child. Duty to yourself and to your family, duty to others, and to never let down the expectations of your family and friends and those who depend on you. Sounds a lot like Kira's story. I didn't know how much longer my father had left, but he knew that I had duties still back at work, people who depended on me, and my sense of duty as something he knew was very important to me. After all, it's how he raised me. But days later, and this is when I returned to work, my older brother told me to come home immediately because my father didn't have much time left. So when I landed, when my airplane landed, I turned on my phone and I received text messages from everyone in my family that my dad passed away hours before I landed. So I wasn't with him when he died, much like Kira wasn't with her father when he died. And that is something that I do and will regret for the rest of my life. In many ways, I have been diminished and feel that pain more often than I would like, much like Kira. Perhaps that is why at times depression overwhelms me. And in sharing my story, I hope that this is something that I can prevent any of you from suffering out there who may face this very same decision in your lives. Please do me and yourselves a favor. Do the right thing when the time comes and never ever be burdened with the kind of regret that Kira and I have held on to for so long. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website, your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you would like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Ferengi Love Songs. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. I hope future episodes have no more dark revelations about Kira's family. I don't think my core processor can take it. transmission podcast.roddenberry.com the roddenberry podcast network